0: Really good to be back uh, after my study leave in the month of January as we return to the Gospel of Luke, asking the text the question, what it would be that these people found so compelling about Jesus that would cause them to leave everything they had and to follow Him. But I hope you've been hearing me say in this entire series uh, that the people who left everything to follow Him is because they found something that that resonated with truth, uh, with meaning, with beauty... In this man, that they could find no other place and in no other form. The first half of the Gospel of Luke, Luke is spent talking about who Jesus was, his unique nature, his person. In the latter half, before getting to sort of the crescendo of the whole point at the cross, he starts to talk about the kinds of lives that his followers should lead. And what you'll notice really from here on out is that Jesus' tone is getting pretty combative. Uh, you know, he's about to end up in Jerusalem to stand trial for who he is and to be executed for it, but it's almost as if he's baiting the religious people to do it, like he wants to go to that cross and to that place. Uh, more on that in the weeks to come, but we want to talk today about how Jesus confronts these religious people about their hypocrisy. Uh, in 2014, there was a Perry County, Ohio judge who was notorious for the hard line that he took against DUI offenders, um, Judge Dean Wilson began this program where he would actually try actual court proceedings at the local high school <laughs> during assemblies in the uh, in the assembly hall. Um, and the point, of course, was to show these high schoolers, kind of in real time, uh, what happens when you break the law and abuse alcohol. Uh, he was even quoted at some point as of, of taking credit for a decrease uh, a decrease in um, Uh, uh, alcohol-related incidents during, like, recent proms and dances that had gone on. Well, you can imagine the shock of the community uh, when, in September of 2014, uh, Ohio saw the news that Judge Wilson had been arrested for, you guessed it, drunk driving. And, of course, apparently apparently Wilson had sort of T-boned some uh, local transit bus in his black Mercedes, And to make matters worse, he had fled the scene, had to be be tracked down by, like, traffic helicopters and things like that. (laughs) Scary experience there. But there was a man on the bus who was actually uninjured uh, who was soon told afterwards that it was that judge, the notorious DUI judge, that had, you know, done this hit and run. To which he responded, it was quoted in a Columbus newspaper as saying, wow, that's amazing. I I would never have believed that. You just expect more from a judge. He needs to acknowledge that he did wrong and own up to it and be a man. And he finished his comments to the reporter by shaking his head and saying, hypocrite, hypocrite. It occurred to me in reading that story, is there anything more socially disgusting than a hypocrite? Someone who is so full of of righteous disdain for others, but then ends up getting busted for doing the exact same thing that he's been claiming other people do. It's the epitome of awkward. And there's all kinds of objections that you'll hear from those who would never ever darken the doors of church that'll say, this is the reason why we left your company. (laughs) Dear Jesus, the bumper sticker says, save us from your followers, right? So many people who profess to know Jesus left him because of the hypocrisy there. On the one hand, these these religious people, they seem so pious and condescending. But you you hang out with them long enough and you'll find out they're exactly like you are. Well, Speaking of things that make Jesus compelling to people, I wonder if it's not compelling for a skeptic to know that Jesus had a similar view. (laughs) Jesus looks at hypocrisy with the same way in which you do, the same disgust. So in Luke 11, Jesus sort of comes to interact with the the religious pace-setters of the day. The Pharisees, the scribes, these lawyers. These were the people that were were sort of the, the power players in public faith. They set the tone for religiosity among their communities. And Jesus sort of levels some pretty acidic rebukes at these people. So this morning, whether you're standing this morning on the outside of Christianity, uh, uh, judging Jesus' followers, or whether you find yourself on the inside of Christianity being judged by Jesus' words to the Pharisees, we really need to look into this question of hypocrisy. What is it that drives it? Um, Is it really a reason to leave Christianity? And how can it be healed? And those are my three points. We'll look at the mischief of hypocrisy, the critique of hypocrisy, and then finally the healing of hypocrisy. Number one, the mischief of hypocrisy. What's wrong with it? What's bad about it? Well, the theme of the passage you get in the verses just prior to the ones that Toby just read for us. Look at verse 35 up a few verses before. Jesus says, Be careful, lest the light in you be darkness a great definition of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is simply being someone different on your inside than you are on your outside. It's being split into multiple parts. You see, the religious leaders of Jesus' day had replaced what it really meant to be formed by the law of God with this mind numbing system of intricate rules that tried to govern every conceivable situation in life. And gradually, over time, the system had become a way in which the leaders separated themselves, you know, from the the grimy masses out there. These writings you'll find actually in collections of books that the Jewish people knew as the Talmud uh, or the Mishnah. The International Bible Encyclopedia says this about the Mishnah. The Mishnah described an orderly world in which Israelite society is neatly divided into its castes, arranged and priored around the center that is the temple, systematically engaged in a life of sanctification, remote from the disorderly events of the day. Now, you didn't notice it, but all of the, all of the frustrated perfectionists in the room just breathed a wistful sigh. Ah, oh, wouldn't that be great to see things be so neat, to have my systems down, to have things be orderly. Of course, Jesus comes along and says, that is the language of a control freak. And the reason why it's a problem is because not only do people find it oppressive to try to follow it, but even you're not following it. You've established all these little loopholes and and excuses for yourself for not following it. So Jesus starts to uncover something very fundamental about the Christian life in his rebuke against these uh, Pharisees. He's exposing one of true faith's most common false expression. Because the spirit of the Pharisees says, look... I do these things, I keep these laws, then I'm acceptable to God. But see, Jesus had come along and given an entirely different reversal of that, where He says, no, you are a broken, divided, hypocritical people that has no chance of gaining God's favor but by His grace. But I'm here to announce that, and on the basis of that, I want you to live a life of integrity, of wholeness. So which is it? Does God accept you on the basis of what you do? Or do you, does He come to you by grace and on the basis of that ask you to obey out of gratitude? Because this is more than just a conversation about the, the problem of hypocrisy. This is, this is like Christianity 101, its first truth. And then this interaction with the two groups of religious leaders, one of the Pharisees, which we've known, heard of. The other one are the scribes, or I think as the text put it, the lawyers there. Jesus goes after hypocrisy with a vengeance. And the reason why is, is because how destructive it is. Because he's basically going to say <clears throat> that all the judgmentalism, the, the condescension, the self-righteousness, the bigotry, it's dangerous for people. It hurts people. And so Jesus levels six different uh, reasons why hypocrisy is so dangerous. How it erodes something fundamental to what we were created to be. I'm going to mention these briefly. Number one, look at verse 42. Jesus talks about how proud these people were of their religious donations. This is elitism, basically. And elitist is someone who elevates certain practices over others. And so the Pharisees took took pride in their tithing, how well they did so. But Jesus says, look, you've been so meticulous, so careful about something that in the end, Is really a very insignificant part of life, but you've ignored the things that my father really cares about, the important fundamentals of being a Christian, which really is how any ism starts, isn't it? Sexism, racism, they all start by raising something that is insignificant to the level of absolute indispensability. That's how any of those things start. And then what you begin to use is you use those things to leverage influence of God, and excuse the fact that you're not really loving people. When all the while, what God wants is for us to be about the business of other people. Namely, doing whatever we can to remove oppression in our society and among ourselves. To bring justice where people don't have access to justice. Which, before we move on, I think that bears camping on for a minute. What thermometer do you use to judge your own spiritual temperature at any given moment? I mean, what criteria do you use to evaluate how you're doing? Because very often Jesus is saying it can be out of balance with the things that God actually cares about. His care is for the oppressed, for the poor, for those people who don't have the material blessings that we have. Start with that and move on after that. Otherwise, you're an elitist, first of all. Secondly, hypocrisy makes you a slave to appearances. Look at verse 43. Jesus says, Oh, You guys love the best seats in the house. You want to know why you want people to judge you by appearances? Because you've got your appearance down pat. But Jesus is saying, this is such a slavery. To be at the mercy of other people's opinion of you is to make yourself profoundly lonely. No one's more lonely than someone who has committed themselves purely to being liked, to being approved of by other people. Yet you don't connect with people. You manage people. I heard a Christian uh, uh, psychologist years ago say that for a lot of us, this thing that we call our personality, you know, just the way I am, is nothing more than a very sophisticated um, uh, sort of uh, strategy that we've deployed from the very earliest of ages to make people like us, to sort of make my way easy in life. What Jesus is saying is oftentimes what we call our personality is just a PR campaign to sort to of keep people in favor. But Jesus is saying if that's what's driving your life, it's going to make you miserable and the people around you. Okay, Slave to appearances. But thirdly, we find out that it also makes us spiritually repellent. Look at verse 44. It's kind of a weird insult from Jesus, but you've got to understand the Pharisees lived by a principle that if you ever came in contact With anything that was dead, it would make you unclean by coming in contact with it. There's actually a whole set of laws like this in the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. And so if a grave wasn't marked, a Pharisee was really nervous about that because he might accidentally walk on top of a grave. And if he did so, he would unknowingly come in contact with a dead body, and therefore he would be ritually unclean. (laughs) Well, Jesus turns this thing completely on top of its head and says, you know what, actually? He goes, when people actually come in contact with your religion, they come in contact with deadness. They're unclean because they're around you. Your religion is what brings defilement, actually. Wow. (laughs) In other words, he's saying religious condescension will never actually invite people in. What is your ministry to people? Is it always like, well, if only you were you were where I was. If, if only you come up to where I am. Ministry becomes a way of telling people that you did it right and if they would only do the same. When, when we avoid being like what I heard one pastor say, we're just beggars, telling other beggars where we happen to have found bread. That's different. In other words, the problem is, is that we take evil and we externalize it. It's always out there, never in here. Jesus says, no, start with you. Begin your thinking there. Fourth, Jesus says it'll lead you to a double life. I right, heard Tim Keller preaching on hypocrisy in a different context. When he, he gave a quote from uh, the movie, um, A Man for All Seasons, where Sir Thomas More uh, is sort of marching on to, his, uh, to be burned at the stake for refusing to uh, put a blessing on King Henry VIII's marriage to Anne Boleyn. And uh, he's been told that he has to affirm uh, King Henry VIII to be the supreme head and supreme church, uh, head of the Church of England. And he's going to die. And so his daughter, Margaret, begins to beg him to recant on the way. And whilst he's going, he utters his famous line when he says, When a man takes an oath, Meg, he holds his own self in his hands like water. And if he opens his fingers, he needn't hope to find himself again. What's Moore saying? He's saying that the scribes have loaded up all these burdens for people to bear, but you're not willing to touch the, those things yourselves. You're living a double life. Hypocrisy is about your identity, and your identity is built by your choices. And Jesus is saying that one of the reasons why you're struggling to find out who you are is because you've opened your fingers and you slip slipped right through. So who knows who you are? Who knows what makes you tick? Fifth, Jesus says hypocrisy will make you angry. Look at verses 47 through 51. Man, These people had gotten to a point where they were even killing people they were so irate. Hypocrites are very angry people. The more you live a double life, the more you're going to watch the flashes of anger come out of you in in almost inexplainable situations. The Pharisees had, had, had contributed to the death of the prophets who were themselves just calling them to repent. Look, you want to make a goal for 2019? Speak to someone about your anger. Find yourself a counselor who will help you work through what it is that's driving your, your flashes of anger, the flashes of rage that we feel. Like, I'm not, I'm not too proud to confess to you that there are people that I love that I would consider dear friends whom I have verbally eviscerated because of what was going on in my own life at the time. But that's the point. It was the fact that I was feeling as fragile as I was that generated it all. You have got to be Sigmund Freud to figure out exactly what's going on. Number six, Jesus says that, that hypocrisy ends up bringing about self-deception. It's a profound mark of hypocrites. Look at verse 52. Jesus says, you have talked themselves into thinking that you have a key to knowledge, but you don't. In other words, not seeing the world in the way in which it really is, or for that matter, seeing yourself in the way you really are, is a deadly disease. The sin that ruins you is the one that you don't see coming, Jesus is saying. Self-deception may not be the worst thing that we do, but it's the reason why we do the most terrible things, which means the means by which we do those terrible things. So look, do you see why Jesus is getting more than a little upset than he normally is? Because he's saying hypocrisy represents what is most destructive about my message. It's what harms you and the communities we're trying to build. It's the chief trait of a spiritually diseased person, which wouldn't be all that interesting until you see what kind of damage it does. So That's the first point, the critique of hypocrisy, or, or the, 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 the mischief of hypocrisy. So I realize if you're a skeptic here this morning, you might be saying, get them. Exactly. This is why I left Christianity or why I'm about to leave. Thank you for admitting it. Which I'm wondering if for some degree doesn't at least give you some hope that Jesus is concerned about this too. But I want to look at the objection a little more carefully, just for a couple of minutes here. Is the hypocrisy of Jesus' people reason to leave the, the, the following, trying to follow God? If you look, uh, flip through Tim Keller's reason for God, he's got a great discussion on this whole question here. Because he encourages his readers to think about the question of what, what, what someone who has left the faith and abandoned God is saying when they say religious people are judgmental uh, and condescending. He says, well, take the sort of corollary truth there. Because isn't that the sense that people, aren't you saying that people ought then to be humble and accepting? But that's a serious question to be asked. If there is no God and you have jettisoned him from your thinking, what foundation do you have to direct other people that they ought to be accepting and humbling? In other words, religious people ought to be this way. But where are you going to extract that humility and acceptance from people? Maybe you might appeal to, I don't know, the the universal brotherhood of man. Hey, we're all in this together, and so, you know, just be nice. Be humble and accepting. Is that really enough? Does that really create something? The golden rule of our day is, you know, believe what you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. We keep on hurting each other over and over again. But don't you see the problem? There is no internal dynamic, no, no motivational core in the brotherhood of man to actually extract that humility from people, which is the reason why Keller ends up saying that the only place where you can find that humility comes in Jesus' first principle. And do you see the irony? <laughs> that in order to get the kind of humility that we need, that we want from religious people, you're only going to find it in Jesus, but you've already jettisoned him. Keller says, the typical criticisms by secular people about the oppressiveness and injustice of the Christian church, they actually come from Christianity's own resources for critique of itself. (laughs) In other words, the only way in which you can criticize religion along these lines is if you borrow from the Christian's way of looking at life and have a relationship with him in the first place. Jesus, Jesus himself is the only one, we are saying, that can give you a moral foundation to combat and reject hypocrisy. So if you leave Christianity because of all the hypocrites in it, you actually have to believe in the basic tenets of Christianity in order to make the rejection. Now look, I realize you didn't come to church this morning for a class in moral philosophy, but that will bake your noodle. <laughs> to borrow from Christianity, and here's the point, it should give every skeptic of Christianity pause to reject Christianity on the basis of all the hypocrites in it when the truth of the matter is that Jesus despised hypocrisy too. The difference, though, between Jesus and you is that he had the foundation to hate it and to heal it. You don't. If there is no God, there is no rule. We just simply have to... Can you force people into it? Shame them on social media. That's about all you got left in our world, right? Right? So what do we do about healing hypocrisy, thirdly and finally? Because you know that's an audacious claim. I just whizzed right past it. But to say that Christianity has the only way to create an internal dynamic that can motivate you into that kind of living is a huge claim. How can you make it? Well, I think our passage gives us at least two of, I'm sure, a lot of different ways in which God heals our hypocrisy. The first one comes in verse 40. Verse 40 says, You fools, did not he who made the outside... Make the inside also? What's Jesus saying? He's saying the first point is, we have a God who sees everything. Do you honestly think you're fooling Him? We have a God who knows you inside and out, and so why are you performing for Him? God's been to the puppet show, you know? He's seen the strings, right? He knows what you're putting on. He knows your duplicity. He knows how you act differently in different groups of people depending on what they want. He's not fooled. And the first reaction you had to that is like, ugh. But you know the reason I think Jesus says it is because it's actually some comfort there. What he's trying to say is, is, I'm trying to create freedom for you. Because at the root of hypocrisy is a fear of admitting something about myself that might be true or that you don't want to be the case. But Jesus is pushing you into that fear, saying, it's okay. Why are you hiding from me? I know your insides as well as your outsides. And think about that freedom. Jesus holds out the possibility that one day we could maybe approach him and create a center in us of being the same on the inside and outside that would mean we wouldn't have to be on all the time. Wouldn't that be great? And no peace for the first time. Think about how often people who have been caught in in major embarrassing public sins feel relieved when they get caught. Why is that? Because they're known. It's actually probably a great test to see whether you're in Jesus' kingdom or not. Does the knowledge of God's knowing you from top to bottom bring you comfort and a sense of freedom? Or does it terrify you? Because in a sense, God promises the first. He knows But secondly, in verse 51, you get the second thing that he offers. Not only is he a God who knows, but he says in verse 51 that blood will be required of this generation. Yeah, no doubt. Because hypocrisy has wreaked such havoc on your own soul and those around you. You have been the agent of spiritual death and destruction. And so Jesus levels the death sentence against such people. I think Jesus takes this seriously or not? But remember, remember where Jesus is headed, y'all. <laughs> because very soon, just a few chapters later, Jesus is going to find himself with a huge temptation to be someone different on his outside than he is on his inside. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he bows before his father, he will wrestle with wanting to be different. But what will he say? In that moment of temptation, he will say, but not my will be done but your will be done. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I am here to be the same person as I am on the inside and outside. And because I did that, I held myself together for you so that you can have the unity of your person, the unity of your personality. And that that would be infected by a group of people who then would be known by their unity. we can stop having to judge others. They don't have to be beneath us anymore because we don't need them to be. The power of the gospel is that it sets a principle inside of your heart that from it begins to radiate the ability to be who God has made me to be and to admit that the worst thing's about me. Talk about your irony. The best way to deal with your hypocrisy is to admit that you're a hypocrite. And when you admit that you're a hypocrite, you've done the best thing you can to stop being a, a hypocrite. It's crazy. turns out that Judge Perry actually got off for his drunk driving charge when a police video showed uh, that they had done the arrest in sort of an improper way. He paid a fine for leaving the scene of the accident and uh, went back to practicing law. Now look, I don't have any idea about the motivational core of uh, you know, Judge Perry. But I do know that some three years later, he emerges again in the newspapers uh, as being behind the sort of driving force behind a brand new program in the Columbus legal system called the New Direction Program. The program basically sort of takes defendants with low-level offenses, mostly drug-related and alcohol-related. And with the uh, assistance of county and state (coughs) resources, they walk people through the experience, starting with their arrest and their incarceration, and and sort of their recovery, their returns to society, trying to set them up with a job and education. In short, trying to bring hope. I just find it interesting that a judge went from his main press, being one of kind of the scared, straight judge, to a man who's trying to give people hope. I wonder why. I wonder if it's because he wasn't exposed, that he couldn't hide his true self. Don't miss a little truth here. One of the reasons why sort of we uncover one of the, reasons the way we uncover our hypocrisy is in community. We're going to talk a whole lot more about this this fall of this year. But you know, other people other people are mirrors to us. Are they not? We see ourselves in very scary ways in other people. So, do you have people in your life who love you enough to tell you how you come across to people? People who love you, right? Do you have people enough who will be that voice of honesty for you to begin to erode my hypocrisy? Or have you left Christianity this morning because of all the hypocrites inside it? Or are you teasing with the idea of leaving it? Have you seen maybe that the hypocrisy might actually be yours as well in condemning the very thing that you're borrowing from? Or are you like me? Do you feel like a hypocrite this morning? You know, ever feel, Do you ever feel divided disintegrated because Jesus is a whole person. And if the table that we come to this morning means anything, it means he is a whole person for you and for his people. And if that's the case then, doesn't that sound, in a word, compelling? Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, would you make yourself compelling to us that as we partake of the bread and the wine this morning, that we would be transformed transformed and unified, brought together in a way that our hypocrisy has split us apart. Make us to be honest here this morning, but Father, in so doing, show us that You have shed Your blood. Blood will be demanded of this generation, and You have provided the very blood that You have demanded. And in that we rejoice. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.